Um, hey, so this morning, um, we're going to jump back into 1 Thessalonians. So he, he was reading to us out of Isaiah. We're not in Isaiah right now. Um, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians. But um, So if you want to turn there, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 12. Um, but as you do that, so I, what, many of you know, years ago, I was, before I moved up here, um, I taught at a little Bible college, Eternity Bible College down in Southern California. And um, it, was, it was amazing. I mean, these college students, you, they're like so eager and you can force them to do things. Like it'd be like, hey, I'm going to preach on 1 Thessalonians this week, so why don't you guys go ahead and read these couple of commentaries, and then you'll be ready when we do it. So they would, they would do it. It was amazing. The thing about uh, college students, though, is the insane idealism, okay? Everything, like they'd learn it, and it was like, that's it, idealistic. And then what happens is, um, over, over time and years, what's happened to all of you happens to them, which is life just beats you down, and you give up all hope, and all idealism is gone, and you're just like, nothing works anyways, what are we doing, you know? Um, but these Bible college students, I, I, would t- I used to teach a class called Christianity and the Arts, and we talk about how um, God created art to be uh, a good gift, uh, something that we enjoy, and something that we utilize, and something that we do in conjunction with his creative activity. Um, and it was such a fun class, but inevitably there were these idealistic Bible college students that would be very upset about the class, that, that it was even offered at all. Because if you go through the book of Acts, what do you see God's people doing? Um, they're, they're preaching and that's about it. I guess they're preaching and they're getting like beaten or something. And that's about it, okay? Other than that, they're not sitting around wasting their time with art. They're not like working. They're not like all these kinds of things. And so what are we doing wasting our time talking about art and beauty and creativity when we should be talking about preaching the word of God? Now, Obviously, I think they were dead wrong, and hopefully life has beaten that idealism out of them by now. Um, but what I, the reason I bring that up is because I believe that this passage, this unique section in 1 Thessalonians, as we've been walking through this letter, um, explores and speaks to the very heart of that thing itself, that idea that um, what does it look like for us to live in the calling that God's given us? Um, and I think it does look like creativity and beauty and love and all these kinds of things that don't get accounted for when we say they're only calling. Now, we... We do, of course, have a calling to preach the word of God, right? To, to preach it in season and out of season, to go out into all the world, make disciples. That is, of course, very deeply true. Um, but Paul gives a different take and a different approach to some of that. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So um, we're, we'll start here in verse 9. And so Paul uh, speaking says, Now concerning brotherly love and, and also sisterly love, uh, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. All right, what a, what a beautiful thought. Okay, so he's just talking about, look, I, I want to tell you something about loving each other, this like brotherly, sisterly love that you experience, but I don't have to write anything because you're already doing it. You've been taught by God to do this. Now, the reason we had Daniel start out by reading Isaiah 54 is it's this beautiful picture and portrayal of God's people, Israel. Okay, so they were at the time, they were God's chosen people. He had led them out of slavery. He had established them in the promised land. He had given them this kingdom and this temple, and they, like, he was there with them, and yet over the years and generations, they began to walk away from him, and they chose idols over the true God, and they, they just kept him at arm's length again and again and again, and finally he sent them into exile. And so they're, they're there at a time, in Isaiah 54, at a time when they're cast off, and they're desolate and they're without hope, and, and they're feeling far from God, and their own sin has been separating them from God, and God speaks to them through Isaiah, sends him these words of comfort and hope after a lot of words of judgment saying, I'm going to bring you back, 
And you're going to be my people again. And I'm going to restore you. And my, my love has never been far from you. And I'm going to pour my love out on you again. And so that's what we read, this beautiful picture of God promising, I mean, the day is coming, my children, my, my people, Israel, the day is coming where I'm just going to pour out my love on you once again. This, this love that you feel like has been missing and lacking. And I'm going to be working and active as I pour my love out on you. And then what does he say? What is it going to look like when God pours his love out on his people? It says this towards the end of that section that Daniel read. It says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, by Yahweh himself, and great shall be the peace of your children. There's this promise that when I come back to do this big, healing, hopeful thing in the world, it's going to look like this. I'm going to teach your children directly. I'll be there and I will be the one that's teaching them. And this is how you'll know that I'm restoring the whole thing. Now we fast forward and we, we look ahead and Jesus looks back to this. In John chapter 6, he's talking about who he really is. He's, he's the bread of life. And there's all these like beautiful things that Jesus is saying. And he points back to this passage in Isaiah 54. And he says, talks about how no one can come to him unless the Father draws me. And he says, this is what the prophets said. This is in Isaiah. They will all be taught by God. And so he's basically saying, everyone who hears from the Father comes to me. So Jesus is saying, there's this work that's happening right now. And the Father is like, as I'm speaking to you, the Father has been drawing a whole bunch of you. And this Father himself, God has been um, teaching you. They're going to be taught by God and they're going to come and hear. And now here's Paul. Paul referencing this exact same thing. This is our passage now for today. Paul saying this exact same thing. Look, I... Concerning this brotherly, this sisterly love that you have, you have no need for anyone to write to you because you yourselves have been taught by God. So he's quoting, I believe, this passage in Isaiah, this same thing that Jesus pointed back to, both of them saying, this is, how, this is the thing that God was promising. This is the thing that God's doing. And look at what the climax of all that is. God is now speaking. God is now teaching his children himself like he promised he would. And what is it that God is teaching his children. What is the huge reveal of this whole thing? Okay, God is at work again. He's here and he's teaching his people. What is that thing that he's teaching them? It is loving one another. And I feel like sometimes I, I want to have like a bigger uh, reveal than that, right? God is working. And so he's teaching us his fivefold strategy for how to like dominate governments and how to control society. Like, nope, that's not what he's doing. God is at work and God is speaking and God is moving and he's teaching his own children. What is he teaching them? He's teaching them how to love one another. Isn't that beautiful? I feel like often I want some more profound answer or some bigger, more complicated thing to say, this is what God is doing in the world. But time and again, scripture keeps coming back to this. What is God doing in the world? What's the big thing it's all been leading up to? It's simply this, loving one another. And I shouldn't be surprised by that. I really shouldn't because it's been there from the very beginning, right? It's a story of a God who loves his people, right? Who, who made a creation, like God made, made the world out of an overflow of his love. He made us as beings to receive his love and, and, he, and we love him in return, right? So there's this beautiful picture. The, the greatest commands, Jesus says, in the, the entire Old Testament, the fulfillment of the law is love. The Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second most, most important commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Time and time again, we got brought back to this idea that at the core of it all and the most essential vital thing is love itself. Love for God and love for each other. And we're reminded of this time and time again. And it's this beautiful thing. John says twice in 1 John, in 1 John chapter 4, he says two times, God is love, which is an enormous statement if you think about it. 
God is love, right? Anytime you say God is anything, right, that's huge. God is love. And so this is at the heart and at the core of the entire thing. And Paul's saying, look, man, when I look at you Thessalonians, like I, I, I feel this urge to tell you, to explain to you how you need to be loving each other. But he's saying, you actually don't need me to write anything because I see God has been teaching you how to love one another. It's already happening because God is already doing it. God is the example. Uh, It's amazing that we have a God who is love, right? God is love. And if we want to know what love is, he's not just a God who's sitting on a throne uh, giving us instructions, although he certainly is a God who is sitting on a throne and a God who is giving us instructions. But he's not just that. He also is love itself, right? He himself is love and he is a God that when we want to know what does it look like to love the people around me, what we really need to do is just see, okay, Lord, what have you done for me? Now I'll go do that for other people. This beautiful example of love, this love that we receive is also the love that we give. And Paul has been in, in First Thessalonians, he keeps going back again and again and again to love. Even, even uh, two weeks ago, when last time we were in Thessalonians, um, Nathan was preaching and he was talking about this section in First Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8, and it's all about sexual immorality. Like keep your sexual conduct in line with what God is, God's design and what he's calling us to. And so there is these... Um, it feels like rules, right? And it feels like, uh, you know, maybe like God's a little bit of a killjoy at times, you know, and he lays this out. But what he's doing in that is in that section on sexual, um, sexual propriety and sexual immorality, in that section, it started, the passage just prior is talking about the need to love one another. And the section just after it is what we're doing today is all about loving one another. This whole framework for our sexual lives is framed in the idea of love for one another. And he even says it in verse 6, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, he talks about how we're not going to live in passion of lust like the Gentiles that don't know God because we don't want anyone to transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. His whole thing he's saying is the reason we don't like live in lust and live in all this sexual morality is because when we do that, we're not loving our neighbors. We are like pursuing something, gratification for ourselves. And so I, I, I don't want you living in lust because then you're going to be hurting and wronging each other. Instead, what I want is for you to be loving each other. I, I'm, I'm convinced, like, the solution to the lust that, that, we, that we all experience on whatever level, the solution to it is not greater discipline and, and, and more tight rules or anything. The solution is actually to look at people not as objects of our desire, but actually uh, people, recipients of our love. If we love one another, then the lust changes, and it dries up, and it turns into something different, and they're people that we can serve rather than people that we simply desire. And so all this, he's just calling us to live in love. Now, he's saying, like, man, I don't even need to tell you about this because you are doing this so well. And they have a reputation, apparently, throughout Macedonia for, like, loving these brothers and sisters that are all around. We don't know any details in that, but Paul's simply saying, like, you guys have have been doing this so well. You've been loving each other well. So what do you say? What is Paul going to say now to, to people that are like loving really well? This is the heart of God. And he's been explaining that. And now there's these people. He's like, you guys have been nailing this. Okay. You've been loving each other so well. What do you tell somebody that has the love command down? Okay. What, like, what do you, is it like, okay, great. Good job loving each other. Now let's make sure we get all of your doctrine in the right place. Okay. Good job loving each other. Now let's make sure that you build the perfect church system and everything else. What does Paul say to somebody that has love in order? This is what he says. It's in the second half of verse 10. And he simply says this, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more. So what do you do? If you've got love down, if you've nailed it and you're the most loving person that's ever existed, what would Paul tell you to do? 
Love more. <laughs> Keep doing it. More and more and more. Love, love, love. Just dig deeper and deeper and deeper into that. That is the point of the whole thing. And so he calls them to do it. Now look at how beautiful what he calls them to do, to live in love, what this actually looks like. So he says, uh, brothers, do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. This is, this to me is an amazing passage, okay? Because it says none of the things that I would expect Paul to say to a group of people as he's saying, okay, if you, you're, you're a new church. If you guys want to get this thing right, if you want to be the kind of church that God's calling you to do, I'm not that surprised to hear him say love more and more. But as he explains what is it going to look like for you to live a life of love towards each other, I'm surprised by every other thing that he mentions. Because I would think, again, the doctrinal precision. I would think maybe church structure, like make sure you appoint elders, make sure that you have um, the right pastors, make sure you get the structure right, maybe make sure you get your morals right. But what he says instead is really interesting. Do this more and more, love more and more. And the first thing he says is to live a quiet life. I think that's remarkable that he would say live a quiet life. I, I think we, we live in a... Um, we live in a society that is just like dominated by striving, okay? I feel this often and I, I try to release my grip on all the things that I'm striving after, but I continually find myself once again just gripping on tight. I'm, I'm reaching after like some kind of significance or I'm, I'm, I'm reaching after like this relationship that I'm holding on tightly to or I'm trying to like accomplish something or I'm trying to move past something in, in a personal goal that I have or whatever and there's this sense of just like tight-knuckled, and we're reaching out, and we're moving out. In the society around us, man, everything is just all about um, hot takes, firm opinions, quick opinions, um, agree, disagree, right? Align with this camp, align with that camp. Like, there's this pull, and our, our society is anything but quiet, I feel like, often, often. And social media only makes it worse. I, I came across... Um, this article, my, my favorite like movie critic is, is this woman named Alyssa Wilkinson, and she was the, the um, movie editor for Christianity Today. But anyway, she, um, she had this article a while back. Um, it was right when the, the movie Fifty Shades of Grey came out. So if you know, you know, and if you don't know, don't even bother to look it up, okay? Um, definitely don't Google it. Um, but uh, you guys are all going to Google it, as if anyone doesn't know. Anyways, um, the, the, the movie's out, and Christianity Today is being asked, okay, oh, um, are you going to review this movie? What's, you know, what are you going to say about it? And she wrote instead an article called, In Praise of Slow Opinions. And she basically said, we haven't reviewed Fifty Shades of Grey. We're not going to. We're not, we don't need to add a voice to the opinion on it. Like it's, she just said, uh, so often in society, and of course they were like very... Um, not condoning of the morals presented in that movie, but um, she says so often what happens is we're, we're pressured to form a hot take and a, and a firm opinion on everything, like everything, right? You've, you've got to know and you've got to know now, okay? So when you find out about something that happened in Florida, right? It's like, okay, what happened in Florida, right? And within like a paragraph, I suddenly have an opinion, right? And I know what side I align on and I know who's an idiot in the situation, right? And I know who the potential hero is in that situation. And we have all this pressure to form quickly an opinion and to stand firm on that opinion, and it's about, it's about everything. I mean, it really is like about everything that we get pulled into. What, what do you guys think about Disney right now? Okay. Like we all have a strong opinion about the movie that, that just came out or the one that's just going to come out or the one that's going to come out after that, right? We all need to know what we think. And when we're on social media, the, the problem is all of it is rigged to 
to, to go away from the slow opinions and to move towards the hot take. So if you're on social media and you're posting things like, you know, there's some great points on either side of this. And if we just kind of take a reasoned approach, you get zero shares, zero likes, nobody cares, nobody sees it, right? But if you step in hot and you say, um, all these idiots saying these things, here is the right, like that gets promoted, that gets the likes, everything else. And so they, we're in a society where that's expected of us. We're rewarded for being opinionated. We're rewarded for being the ones that figure it out quick and stand firm. And in the midst of that, I just picture Paul walking in and he says, hey, puts his hand on our shoulder and just says, hey, just want you to live a quiet life. Just keep increasing in your love and just, hey, live quietly. It's okay. You don't have to be loud. You don't have to be opinionated. You can have slow opinions. You can, have, you can be a deeper well. You don't have to uh, splash it all to the top. I feel like a lot of the ways we've been living in the last few years is it's like we're living with our elbows out, right? And we're, we're worried about kind of losing our place in societies, whether that's us as individuals or maybe us as, as a church, uh, maybe Creekside Church, maybe the church as a whole, um, maybe us as Americans. And we're living with elbows out. We're trying to jockey for position and make sure that we kind of carve out our space for ourselves. And just picture Paul coming in and say, hey, hey, elbows down, deep breath, live a quiet life. It's okay. You don't need to have an opinion on everything. It's okay. People will fight about the stuff. You can breathe deeply and you can live in a life that, that gives and receives love to the people around you, right? Don't cling so hard. Don't, don't shove everybody out. Just be content in your relationship. You don't have to strive so hard. Even in your relationship with God, just breathe deeply and know he loves you more than you can imagine. And just stop striving in that relationship. Let him love you. Receive his love. Um, return his love, right? Just enjoy um, who he is. Live in the ambiguity and the tension, but just breathe and live a quiet life. It's such a, such a beautiful countercultural call right now. But it gets more countercultural, okay? So aspire to live quietly and to mind your own dang business is basically what he says next. I haven't seen a translation that puts it quite like that, but you know that's what he's saying. Mind your own affairs, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we live in a gossip culture, for sure. That's in our society, and that's inside of the church as well, right? A gossip culture. Uh, we live in a cancel culture, and that is inside the church and outside the church. That is liberal, and that's conservative. We live in a cancel culture where you get outraged at whoever, for whatever, and they're, they're dead to us, right? They're canceled, they're gone, they're dead to us. And we're all doing it, and we're all accusing everyone else of being the ones who are doing it, but we're all culpable in that. We, we live in like a dunk-on culture, right? Right? Where, where somebody slips up, someone says the wrong thing, and we're just right there grabbing the rebound and just slamming it on somebody's head and showing what an idiot we know they are and everyone else needs to see it too. We just live in a culture where that's just all around us and we're just living and swimming in that type of approach to life. We, we, we need to know about everything, right? We're so curious. We need to know about everything. And when you mention an event that I haven't heard about yet, I'm going to Google it because I need to know so that I can be outraged too, Right? I feel like there's times in life where I'm like, I'm like, I mean, I'm really like calm and everything's fine. There's something out there that I don't know about that I should be upset about. Um, but somehow I've like missed the wave on this one. I missed the news cycle on whatever thing. And I just see Paul just coming into all that and just saying, hey, mind your own affairs. You've got plenty to focus on. You've got plenty to work on. You don't need to go digging to find more. Now, of course, we, we, we care about the things that we care about, right? And God puts people in our path that we should care about, right? And there's issues that God's put on each of our individual hearts that we should care about. And we should be activists in like a thousand ways. We really should. But I just hear Paul in the midst of that saying, hey, but make sure, even as you care, even as you work, even as you do the hard things, make sure you do it in a way that is living a quiet life and in a way that's minding the affairs that God's put in front of you and not stressing about what everyone else should be doing, but, but do your thing and, and do the thing that God is calling you to do and do the thing that God's put in front of you. And then he says, next, 
live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands. Work with your hands as we instructed you. And this is a reminder, I think this is a call for us to get involved and to make. Now, in the next verse, he's going to go on to say how we should work with our hands and not be dependent on others. So I think he's, he's framing it in a way where instead of seeing people as objects that we receive from, right? Like, okay, I'm going to see my relationships and everyone else, and I'm going to see what I can get and receive from them. He's saying, no, 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 you be the contributor. You be the one that makes something. You be the one that creates. You be the one that works with your hands and, and does a thing so that you can be a blessing and not a dependent on everyone else around you. Now, of course, bigger picture, uh, we as a church, we depend on each other. We need each other. We as a society depend on each other and need each other. So there, there is that greater sense. But here's Paul saying, live quietly, mind your own business, and, and, and work with your hands. I think that when, I, when I read this, what I, what I have been um, drawn to is an, the idea called um, living generatively, okay? So I stole this from um, this guy, Makoto Fujimura. He's a Christian and a, and a like, world-class artist, and he's really amazing. And he has this uh, idea of, of, of we should be generative. Um, he's got a book called Culture Care that's amazing. And um, living generatively. So what that means is you can hear in the word generative both the idea of generating, like creating, okay? So generate things. Um, but also you can hear the word generosity in there too. And the idea is... We, we live a life where we create things that we then use and, and to bless and to give to the people around us, right? Rather than being takers, rather than being hoarders, rather than being purely receivers, we generate. And we live lives that are generating. I think that's what Paul's getting at when he says, um, work with our own hands. So we look at the people around us as people that we can bless rather than just people that we can pull from. Generate, be creative, be generous. All these things, I think he's calling us to do. So if we could, as a church, be a group of people that's not sitting here finding out all the things out there that we're to be outraged by, um, and if we're not people that are sitting here saying, okay, what do we need to boycott this week, right? Instead, what if we lived quietly? What if we minded our business and we just said, okay, how can we use the unique tools, gifts, talents, interests that God has given each of us to be a blessing, to, to be givers, to be generous, to generate for the sake of each other and the world around us. Imagine that the slow beauty that that creates, that the slow cultural change that begins to generate. That is such a beautiful picture. And I see that as Paul says, work with your own hands, right? Don't, don't like walk properly towards outsiders is what he'll say next. And, and um, don't be dependent on people, but work with your hands, bless, give, generate. And as soon as I say that, like, I, I feel like it's important to say, like, as soon as I say that, um, we need to ask the question, like, what, what if there's, what if I feel like I, there's not much that I can do, okay? So I know, I know there's some of you that have, um, at, like, right now, where at times in the past, you feel like, okay, um, like, I, I'm, I'm really, like, down on my own gifts, or, um, or I'm really, like, um, you know, illness or whatever has really sidelined me. Like, I, there's not much that I can do, right? There's been um, several people that I know that I love dearly that have been kind of sidelined in a way that they're like, I, I'm, I used to do this ministry, I can't do it anymore. I used to, like, create or work and I can't do that right now, and you feel like you're on the sideline. And I feel like even in the midst of that, though, all these people that I know that are in that boat even, there's people that just sit there and they're like, okay, I can't really get out of bed today, but I can pray today. And there's people that are just like insane prayer warriors. And I'm telling you that somebody sitting in their bed and praying for the things that the Lord puts on that person's heart, that is not nothing. It's like the opposite of nothing. It is this intense gift and generosity and this generative work on behalf of us as a church family and on behalf of society. 
There's people that I know that they can't physically do a ton, but they write notes of encouragement and they speak a word to people when they got the opportunity to. And so all these things, there's, there's these reminders that it doesn't matter where we're at in life or season. It doesn't matter how we assess our own skill level. There's always this opportunity for us to get involved and do things that God is calling us to do. And so um, I think what Paul is saying in, in this whole thing, so Love more and more and more. Live quiet lives. Uh, uh, mind your own affairs and work with your own hands. I think what he's saying in that big picture is like really way more remarkable than we tend to think. Uh, because if I go back to my Bible college students, <clears throat> like bless them, I love them. They're amazing. Um, but, they, but the idealism of my life has value if I get out and preach all the time, right? What does God want me to do? He wants me to stand on a soapbox anytime I can and preach to people. And of course, there's value in preaching the word of God. I obviously believe in that. But, but Paul is saying here, there is value and dignity and, and a calling in Everything we do that involves living quietly, minding our affairs, and working with our hands. So that means when you're in your workplace, it doesn't matter if you're like a ministry worker or if you're like working in finance or if you're working in retail or if you're doing whatever, whatever it is that you're doing, there is value in that. You can follow the Lord's commands as he says, yeah, Paul, Paul's calling us like work with your hands. Like this is so vital and important. This is part of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And remember, anything we do to invest ourselves into blessing our community, loving the people around us, everything we do along those lines is fulfilling the command that Jesus said was the second most important important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so there's this call, there's this affirmation to these small things, these things that don't on the surface appear ultra spiritual, but that in themselves actually are these acts of generating, loving, blessing the people that are all around us. And so um, Makoto Fujimura, in talking about this idea of being generative, he talks about how um, we need to cultivate a mindset of stewardship Rather than, he says, don't cultivate a mindset of survival and scarcity, okay? So scarcity, it's like there's not enough to go around, right? And survival is like, I got to get mine, otherwise it's all going to be gone. And that's when I think the elbows come out and we do that whole thing. And he's saying, look, when we li don't live like that, right? Live a life that is more about um, stewarding. We, we live in a culture that is scarcity and survival focused. And he says, in the midst of a culture like that, any act of generosity, any act of giving can actually prepare the soil for like this healing and wholeness that we find in the gospel. It, it doesn't take, when, when everybody is stressed about surviving and, um, and getting what they get before anybody else does, all it takes is these simple acts of love and grace and blessing and generosity and creativity. And those things speak so loud in a culture that's dominated um, by it. And unfortunately, I think we as a church have too often gone along with that scarcity mentality. And so uh, this is what, he uses this as an example. He talks about effective stewardship. It leads to generative work and generative culture. What does that look like? He says, we turn wheat into bread. Okay, so think, think about that. Wheat is something that God created, right? It does like, like, I guess we can genetically manipulate wheat now, but let's just say we can't. Wheat just grows, okay? God makes it grow. We plant the seeds, I guess, but it just comes up, okay? But what human beings do, we are generative. We create, and so we take wheat and we shape it using culture into bread, right? Which is remarkable. It's really incredible that we can make bread. So he says, what we do as humans, we generate. We take wheat and we turn it into bread. And then he says this. He says, we turn wheat to bread and then we turn bread into community. 
And isn't that a beautiful thought too? Our cultural genitive work takes wheat and makes it bread. And then he says we take bread and we make it into community. It's this like alchemism, right? Where we take something so simple like a loaf of bread and by inviting people in and by sharing what we have, we are opening up and we're creating this space for community. And he's saying, this is being generative. This is creating in the world. This is countercultural in a way that shows the heart of God to love the people around us, to love us and the people around us through us. So he says, we turn wheat to bread and we turn bread into community. He says, we turn grapes into wine and wine into occasions for joyful camaraderie, conversation, and creativity. He says, he's an artist, so he says, we turn minerals into paints and paints into works that lift the heart or stir uh, the spirit. I mean, just a beautiful thought, right? That these little generative things that aren't overly spiritual, are they? But yet these things that we do to create and to serve and to bless become these big, important things that God is wanting to do in the world. And here's where Paul leaves this section. He says, we do all this. We do all this, verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and dependent on no one. And the word outsiders is, is um, super unfortunate here, I think. And so I looked it up in the Greek to see, like, what's a better word than outsiders? It literally just means outsiders, okay? So there's no dressing it up. He's talking about there's people inside the church and there's people outside the church. And so he says, when we do these things, when we live these lives of love, when we live these quiet lives, when we mind our own affairs, when we work with our hands, he says, what we do is then we're living properly towards the people that are outside of us. We're not trying to dominate them. We're not trying to coerce or manipulate them. We're simply living these lives that are proper, that are, that are, that are according to God's design towards those that are inside the church and those outside. And he says, I, I believe he's saying that, in being dependent on nobody, instead of being a pull and a draw on everyone, we can now be a blessing to the people around us. It's a beautiful, beautiful thought. And so what he says is basically this. How, how does this become then a blessing to outsiders? He basically says, this is, I'm sorry, I'm back to Makoto Fujimura now. He says, what happens is in the scarcity survival mindset where we've all got our elbows out, is what happens is everyone else becomes an enemy to me or a competitor, right? Because they're trying to get the same things that I need to get my hands on. And, and we as Christians, we do that, right? We're trying to get a market share. We're trying to get like Hollywood to do its thing or we're trying to get our movies seen or whatever. And we're just doing all this. And he says, instead... Let's step back and he says, let's see that, that culture, the culture around us in our community, our culture is not a battleground to be fought over and won. It's actually a garden that's meant to be tended, cultivated, cared for. And man, I just love that picture. Now, of course, there's, there's things to win. There's things to oppose. There's, there's like big, important projects to be activists in. Of course, of course, of course. But I think this, this reminder is so helpful. It's not just about scarcity. Let's seize control. It's about, hey, I'm going to live quietly. I'm going to mind my own business. I'm going to work with my hands. I'm going to be a person that, that looks at the people around me in my church and, and beyond that uh, as, a, as a priest in a sense, like in blessing, right? Wanting to create, wanting to generate in such a way that I create spaces for people to come alive, spaces for people to be themselves, where I can invite people in to like what God is doing in, in my life and in the people around me. Places where we can empower other people to do what God's called them to do. These are the kinds of things I think Paul is calling us to. And it comes down to simply love. And so I want to I just end this by just saying, like, let's ask the right questions, right? So rather than asking, like, what is wrong with everybody else, right? How many times have we said that recently? I can't open my news app and not be like, what is wrong with everybody? Instead of asking that, right, um, just start asking, what, what, what is God wanting to do in partnership with me? Like, what, what is God calling me into to create, to bless? Like, what is he, how does God view the people that are around me? And what can I do to kind of create something that is a blessing to people? 
And it could be literally a work of art. It could be a, um, it, you know, it could be food. That's always a great blessing, right? It could be a space that you create for people. It could be a way that you serve somebody. It could be just simply the way you function in your workplace. It could be the way that you care for your family at home. All of these things are just ways for us to be generative, generative people, generous, creative, um, and, and all of it, remember, in that framework of love. I mean, you don't need anybody to write to you about love because God himself has taught you to love. What a beautiful reminder and a beautiful thought. I feel that way about us as a church. Creekside, the Lord God himself has been teaching you to love, and I'm seeing it all the time in so many ways. It is so inspiring and so beautiful. And my, my reminder would be the same as Paul's. Let's just keep doing that more and more and more. Let's recognize that there's not some ultimate thing that love is in the service to. No, love is the point, and God is love, and he invites us and calls us to live in that love. And so let's live in that all the more and more and more.